Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this um, session of the LSE Literary Festival 2012. My name is Angus Wren from the London School of Economics Language Centre, and with my colleague, uh, Dr. Sobolev, Albert uh, Sobolev, will be presenting this session this afternoon on the themes of storytelling and translation. We've just been in the green room where the people for the other session are preparing something on rhetoric, lies, and politicians. So, back to person there, that this is mild stuff. But we've got, actually, in the other session, they've got a former uh, foreign secretary who has also written novels, but in terms of multiple talents, I think we can do much better than that. <laughs> uh, we've got Rina Levitska, who's um, one of the best selling novels of the early 21st century. Uh, we've got George Sertish, um, very prolific poet and twice winner of the T.S. Eliot Prize. Once. And finally, Jeremy Sands, whose talents range from uh, translating and also you're a practicing performing musician. You've been a, as a, a repetitor in the past and you've also written film music and I think written musical yourself and uh, both done book and uh, music. So that's our panel today. Well, uh, go over what we'll be doing in, in the session. Uh, we're going to start off with a, a, a sort of discussion with the panel, panel members here, and then after that we'll have a very brief session where we're going to present the winner of this year's um, literary prize for microfiction LSE, and it is indeed micro, we can show it all on one screen. Um, we we'll taking a very brief moment after we've had a discussion, and perhaps we have time for some questions from the floor. Um, and then the final stage of our session is going to be a, a tribute to the late Vassar Pavel, who died, of course, very recently, and is, uh, well, I said, you know, the other session's about politicians. We're finishing uh, with a, uh, uh, a playwright who became one of the most important politicians of his time. And we're going to be presenting you the opening scene of his final play, Leaving, uh, as the last part oh. of this session. But I'd like now to perhaps turn to our panel members and perhaps have a, a clip of each of them in, in turn. So we've got a brief clip of each person speaking while the panel members cringe while we play over their heads. I feel very proud and very, very honoured. I spent a long time in academia, but I was never a very good academic because I was always sneaking off and doing my own writing rather than doing the proper academic work. So it's very nice that you can be rewarded for doing something you really love doing. The actual process of sitting writing is really very, very pleasurable because you just drift off into another world and you imagine yourself in a, in a different place. Um, at the moment I'm writing about the city, so I'm imagining myself in a lot of very posh restaurants, which is extremely nice. And also, the, what I haven't realised is that there's so much of um, being a writer involves going around to places, meeting people, going to festivals, reading, meeting your readers. Um, sometimes you wonder about the hours put in at the laptop, whether they're really worth it, because it is very, very hard work, and it has to be squeezed in around everything else. I think the strange thing is that, you know, at my time in my life, because I'm well into my 60s now, it's starting a completely new career. And I think that... For me, the most wonderful thing is realising that a lot of things begin at 60. Well, I think the first thing I'd say is, uh, to anyone wanting to be a writer, is li live an interesting life and do interesting things and have weird friends and be born into a crazy family. That all helps. But after that, it's a lot of hard work like everything else. Words must be saved from over-familiarity, cliché and mendacity. Here is my emergency plan. Each morning, after breakfast, you will be texted the word of the day. A common word, nothing fancy. You will repeat this word until its meaning has quite drained away. And it is a mere nonsense sound. It will feel like water running through your fingers. A meter will be provided to check the nonsense level. Once a meter is on zero and all meaning is gone, you will be required to construct ten different sentences using the word until it is re-familiarized and the meter shows 100. This is called washing the word. A year's course 
will fully re-engage you with not only language, but the vital language life system. You will feel a sense of well-being, much as you do when you're wearing freshly laundered clothes. Failure to carry out the exercise will result in the word being withdrawn from your vocabulary. Careful. You could end up in the courts naked, verbally bankrupt. These are desperate times, remember. No pain, no gain.
And I said, sorry about that. And then he said, also the consonants are slightly different as well. And I tried to explain to him very carefully that if the vowels and consonants would have been the same, he would be singing it in Italian. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing has changed. So he was saying he liked translation apart from the vowels and the consonants. <laughs> the thing about, there's many things we have to think about. First of all, meaning, but actually, um, sometimes literal meaning is, is not going to work. The key thing is the words have to cling to the music like Latin film or something else that clings. Um, and actually, for that to work, a literal translation just sounds like nonsense and would always sound like nonsense. So if, if Parigi, if, if that rhythm is all the way through and you don't want to change the rhythm, you, you might have to you know, find some other way of, of phrasing it or another way of saying it. But finding those solutions is what it's all about. The one part where I'm rigorous, though, is on vowels, because a lot of singers like to, particularly on high notes when you vocalise, um, they like to have an R sound, which is what a lot of composers write in. So I'm forever writing things that end with stars and Mars and stars. <laughs> However, Mozart, for example, um, in the Magic Flute, the first woman who sang Pamina plainly liked to have E vowels up there, because all the high notes that Pamina has in the Magic Flute are in fact E's. Most of the Lieber Fühler and Top B flat. So I wrote, if you really love me, <laughs> and the singer said, I can't, I can't, this is a terrible vowel, so I, said, I refer you to Mozart. Um, but it is the most complicated thing to do. And take a really um, famous expression, and we'll do an opportunization. Mi chiamo no Mimi, that's the first phrase of Mimi's aria in, um, in La Buena, which means, um, they all, they all call me me me, okay? You can't say they all call me me me. <laughs> well, there's some singers would love that because they can warm up while they're, while they're singing. Um, so you have to find solutions all the time. Yes. Less on dormer. No, none shall sleep. None shall slumber. Um, you can find ways of always of reinventing. But the point is this: that it has to hit the audience with the clarity that the original piece intended to hit the audience. So actually what you're translating, something we come to a lot, is not the thing, but the effect the thing has on the audience. Could I move that one that question on to you, George, um, on this question of vowels and consonants when it comes to translating, because you translate from Hungarian into English, both in poetry and also you translate <coughs> prose. I have a, um, a neighbour who's a former opera singer, and she, she performed under Sir George Schulte, who was Hungarian, and she said he conducted entirely with his elbows and he spoke English using only consonants. <laughs> um, is, is that a problem when you come to translate between those languages? I've worked with a number of people with composers in schools and so forth, and I've written texts for them. I remember on one occasion asking, well, what would you like them? He's somebody I hadn't worked with before. And they said, vowels. <laughs> and I said, okay, give you vowels. Um, there are these different systems. If you're talking about poetry, you're talking one thing. If you're talking about fiction, you're talking about something different. In poetry, to find an equivalent to the sound um, is important. You will not find a precise sound. Um, you will not find a precise word. It is, um, you know, as, as Jeremy was saying, to some degree you're translating for effect. Um, in terms of prose, there are other dynamics at work. Um, there are dynamics which are to do, I suppose, with the way something progresses through syntax into another piece of syntax. Um, the principle is similar in this way. You're trying to hear a voice, or at least the voice that you're trying to hear um, is a voice that is available to you in your language. So you hear it a little bit in that, and you think, well, how does this work? And it takes you a little time to work that out. And of course, once you've worked it out, you haven't completely solved the problem because what you may be hearing is your own voice doing that voice. Mm. But yeah. that doesn't matter too much, I don't think, because in effect, we accept that that is what happens. You know that when you read a translation of a poem, you're not reading the same poem. Nobody would pretend you are. You're reading an echo. You're reading um, a series of echoes. If you're reading um, a work of fiction, it is slightly different because you don't measure work of fiction by, if you like, by phrase or by sentence. You measure it by some kind of forward dynamic and a kind of ambience or a kind of density um, in which that voice, it's pitched, and through which it then has to move. Thank you. And Marina, actually, you don't translate yourself, but your novels have been translated. We were just discussing. Very much translated, yes. You've talked a little bit about. 
Well, the, the textbook has been translated into 35 languages, and most of them, I can't even, you know, I only have a vague idea of whether to read them forwards or backwards. Um, so a few languages I know well enough to have a look at the translations, and I think, oh my goodness. I feel totally sorry for um, my translators, because I know that my books are very difficult to translate, because they're not simply um, a story. They, all of them have got characters um, who, whose origin is not, whose first language is not English. And so, um, in English, it works perfectly well to have people who, who aren't native English speakers having fun and making all kinds of mistakes in English. But when you come to translate that, it's a real puzzle for the translator, because how do they translate and bad English into, for example, bad Chinese or bad French. And, and, and every translator has approached it in a slightly different way. So for example, I know that um, it, it's just come out in Chinese. <coughs> and the um, translator who worked on it is from Beijing and gloried in the fact um, that Valentina, and the, um, who spoke the worst English in the book was given a Shanghai accent. <laughs> um, in, um, now, but when it came to the short history of tractors in Ukrainian being translated into Russian, that was a real problem because what my Russian translator terribly unkindly did was to make all the bad English um, into a very strong Ukrainian. So when, when Ukrainians read the book, it was actually it hasn't been available in the Ukrainian translation, but it is soon to be, and all, all of this will be put right. But then I'm seen as an utterly unpatriotic um, writer, because all the Ukrainian characters just sound completely stupid. So um, it, every translator has approached it differently, and I feel quite sorry for them, really. That's all I can say. There, there, there is no single answer. And, but um, there, there, it isn't a question of translating literally. Everybody has had to reinterpret that particular challenge in their own way. Thank you. Well, I think we may come back to translation in the course of this discussion. We've certainly had a good argument about how whether Alexander Lines can be translated <laughs> into English before. Um, but, uh, Jeremy, on the question of storytelling, uh, can you tell us about this latest venture of yours at the Metropolitan Opera in New York, where you've sort of produced an opera? That was a... Uh, in many ways a wonderful thing. Um, I was given a job in, in New York and the job was to listen to a lot of Baroque music, hopefully obscure Baroque music, and then from there to put on an opera. And that was the limit of the, of the brief. And it opened uh, on New Year's Eve and was actually shown in cinemas all over the world. It was very exciting. Because literally it started from, from nothing. So I chose lots of music which I liked and made up a story and wrote it in English and structured it, really, it's all about structure. Structured it like, um, not like a handle opera so much, more like a Broadway musical, actually. Oh, really, yeah. Yes, um, which is a structure I really like. Mm. And it's very, and being very honed, uh, handle opera has eventually become Broadway musicals with erosion and evolution. Um, the three-act form becomes the two-act form. The um, things become tidy. It's not longer than I wanted it to be, but it's all, uh, but you know, we had a dream ballet in Act Two, a cliffhanger in Act One, we had uh, things like that. Yeah. So, and um, the way of telling the story was quite fun. And again, it's purely a caprice. The whole thing was a caprice. And I decided to base it because the music was obscure, was something well known, which is Shakespeare's Tempest. But I didn't find enough love interest. And Baroque opera is driven by love. You know, you fall in love, aria. Someone watches it, jealousy, aria. Someone falls out in love, aria of hate, and so on. But, but love stokes the fire, and and there's not enough people in Tempest, and not in a conventional setting. There's a lot of chaps, I suppose that's so. Um, so I, the thing I really fancied was the the lovers from the summer next dream because they're very good and they're very operatic, as in Christian to say those sort of that quartet of of lovers. So I thought, what would happen if you put then, and it's a game I've been playing a bit over the years, just for fun. How we, and there are authors who do it, just before it all happens when Jane walks into Wuthering Heights, basically. <laughs> um, so what happens when, in this case, the lovers from Miss Summer's Dream are having had the whole play on their honeymoon, and then they get caught in a tempest and on an island. What happens? And that, the thing that happened, which was Prosper expecting them to be Ferdinand, so Ariel getting people in love with each other, out of each other, drove the story. And um, it, was, it, was, it was huge fun. And the story element of it, mostly as you've seen from that clip, which isn't relevant at all to this, I work, I work in, in theatres, that's what I do. 
and keeping story going and keeping that rule. Me and my collaborators have a very, very dangerous game. The game's called Board Now. And the way Board Now works is you read out your story to each other and the person you're working with is allowed to shout, Board Now. <laughs> <laughs> and it takes some courage. But action, to keep a story, cut the story, and to keep everything story is the trick of it, really. And the best writers, um, for example, I directed uh, Michael Frayne playing Les Zoff, not this time around, time before, but still a marvellous play. Everything people say in that play, and in various other Michael Frayne plays, purports to be discussion, but is in fact story, set up, and careful planning. And the trick of doing that on stage, which is quite different from doing it in any other way, because it's in the air, has to be sculpted in the air from nowhere, is, um, is fascinating. It's quite hard to do in an opera where things just sometimes people discourse on, yeah. on, on, on things. But, but actually to keep things, you know, to know there's a bomb under the, under, under the table, even when someone's singing their love song, you know, to keep <laughs> things interesting all the time. This is what I tried to do in that piece. George, on this question of storytelling, is it a big element in your own poetry? Um, I, I know some of the latest volumes of any of the books are a poem called The Storyteller, and I think... The Storyteller is a series of prose poems, in fact, which are fragments of stories which come out of longer things, some of which are purely imagined and don't really exist. Some are personal memories, some are little meditations, um, but they all seem to have a, the quality of an event. I think, you know, when people think about stories in poetry, you think about epics and you think about ballads. But mostly we think in terms of lyric poetry, which is very short, in which there is no plot as such. There's an event or there's an incident. And around this event or incident are woven all kinds of complications, um, which are unstated complications. So you read the associations of them, you take them to the emblematic things. You can't even necessarily say sometimes what they're emblematic of, but you feel that they have that potential. All poems have a narrative of some sort. We, this is something I've talked about before with students where I teach. And we look at something like uh, William Carlos Williams, or, you know, the Red Wheelbarrow. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. So where's the story in that? It's in the first line. So much depends upon. <laughs> so much depends upon suggests a world to which that set of isolated things belong. In my poetry, I'm, I'm no different from any other poet in that respect. I, I'm working around events which seem to me significant. But there's always a desire to push things a little bit further, to see whether some kind of sense of continuity um, may arise. I mean, just one more sentence about this. Um, Edgar Allan Poe wrote uh, an essay in which he said there was no such thing as a long poem, although there are long poems, there are only short poems joined together with bits of string. So you remember the intensities, the lyrical intensities, and in the meantime some sort of mechanism happens, you know. Um, you, you can go from passage to passage in Paradise Lost, passage to passage in a prelude, and you think, yes, it's a remarkable work, but you're remembering this, that, or the other. But the joining up of those bits, it, what is the string is the question. Okay. <laughs> Can you make something of the string so it doesn't look quite so much like string, but it begins to look like magic? And that's how sequences get written, and sequences are something I've been doing for a very long time. And um, Marina, you've um, got a great reputation as a storyteller, but you said earlier that you're not just a storyteller. Um, well, I'm deeply meaningful. Yeah. I'm a philosopher yeah. <laughs> and a poet and an economist. In, and here you are. Um, and uh, I, I came to say that. Uh, your second novel, uh, Two Caravans. Yes. Uh, you, you put a dedication to the Morecambe Pickers. With that novel, were you, uh, did you have an issue that you wanted to write about, or did you have a story to tell, and then you realised it meant something in terms of what's I, I did. I did have a story to tell. Um, someone gave me a, a pamphlet um, called Don West, Ukrainians at Work in Britain Today. And I said, Ha, you're Ukrainian, this will interest you. And I picked it up, and sure enough, it interested me. And I thought, there's a story here. And, but also, that I'm the person to tell this story. There, there isn't anybody else who's writing fiction at the moment for whom this story is as meaningful as it is for me. And that was the starting point for Two Caravans. And of course, um, the Morecambe Bay Cockle Pickers are part of that much wider story, which is the story of people who migrate from somewhere else, who end up 
living in England who make what they can you know, with the language, with the culture, and who aren't here to be miserable or to exploit people or to be exploited. They're here to learn English, have a bit of sex, and um, go back home with a bit of money. And, and so, in, in a way, that, that's the story, the story of what happens to people who come with this very, sort of, these very basic needs and, and, and what happens to them. But I have to say that that book in particular, as a piece of storytelling, is extraordinarily complex, because when I started telling it, I think this is the thing that, that, that may not apply so much to poetry or to opera, but when you have a narrative, you have a narrator. And the hardest thing in writing a piece of fiction is deciding who's going to be the narrator for this story. Um, and so, in a way, for tractors it was easy. The narrator was Nadia, and everything was told from her point of view. And, and I thought, well, I'll do the same with two caravans. But when I started to write it, I saw that there was no person in the book who could narrate the whole book. And the idea of having this sort of author floating above, being all-seeing and all-knowing, I, I tried it. I wrote a whole version in that authorial voice. It was dreadful. It was horrible. It was sort of... It was, it, was all, it was all the reason all my previous novels were rejected. And I thought, goodness, um, there's only one way around this. I had to give the story, the story, I had to give the narrative back to the characters. So I went back into it, broke it up. And th there are actually, in, in, in two caravans, it's phenomenally complicated, there are nine narrators. And the story then moves forward from one to the other. And my model was... Um, it wasn't, it wasn't so much a thread, it was like a game of rugby where you have the ball and every character grabs the ball and they run for it and they toss it and they throw it backwards so that um, the, you know, the, the person who catches it already knows what's going to happen for the first little bit and then they run with it a little bit and tell their part and then they throw it and, th and that's how it progresses towards the goal. I have to say I will never do that again. It was, it was too hard. <laughs> but it was, it was a very interesting challenge. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, that's one of the words I'm not allowed to use, isn't it? Well, don't use challenge. <laughs> You're not allowed to use it again in the next half. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, watch out if I say it. So just come. Well, in the wake of both George and Tom, you know, you, you both have written as well in your case as an infant, and in your case as a, a child. Um, do you think having that background in another country um, does it enhance the aspect of storytelling, either in life or in your work that you then produce? Does it have a bearing? Well, I'm not really a storyteller. Um, I think it must make a difference. Um, I'm sure it does. I think translation makes a difference too. I think there are certain um, elements which are lodged in your mind from very, very early on. I think quite often that when you are young, you're a child, and the first door you see becomes a pattern of all doors, the first view from a window is a pattern of all these from windows. You don't lose that. It goes way, way underground. Um, and all those things, I think poetry being such a language-intensive medium, begin to float a little bit towards the surface. Um, there's a whole lot of material which I've written, which is about Hungary, which, um, although I don't try to cut so much of that now. Um, and then conversely, there's a whole lot of material which is about England, which is being slightly strange in England, I suppose. Um, but well, I think having two languages is a huge advantage for any kind of writing. I think it helps to be able to see language as though it wasn't absolutely authoritative. Mm, as though it, one thing it, yes. could kind of slip into another. I think almost all poets sense of language as something kind of slightly slippery, slightly mm. evanescent. Mm. Um, never, you love it, but you don't trust it. Mm. And that sort of balance between loving and trusting, is, I think, goes right to the heart of the poetic act, really. And you know that there's always another way that something could be said. Oh yes, well you know very well that when we talk about bread, I think you brought mm. up this thing, you know, Hungarian for bread is kenir. And if I go into a Hungarian shop and ask for kenir, I'll get a different kind of bread. Oh. Not only that, but kenir, the word for bread, will appear in so many different contexts. It will carry with it a whole set of associations. Now, is that the real bread or is this the real bread? Or is pan the real bread or is broth the real bread? All, you realise the relativity and, and, and the kind of um, the transparency of things. That, and it makes you value language actually all the more because you see how frail it is and how it tries to do so much and achieves so little. And are you old enough to remember that bread used to mean money? Yes, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Among other things. It's interesting because I think the English is quite a different language from all other languages and this is what associates some people who who add 
when I was a kid, I was brought up by a very an odd linguist and academic father who made me and my brother do a French day and a German day every week. Oh. <laughs> and as a result, French and German have sort of permeated. It's great. Um, but what was good about that, and think about this recently, is that the Frenchness and Germanness of English, which is, after mm. all, uh, two languages one off each other, mm. and two rather incomplete languages, basically. And so the Roman Saxon, Anglo-Saxon, whatever you like to call it, but basically we're talking French and German at any given time. If I get bored over, you can read anything, even a harpic tin, and work out which words mm. in there are mm. German, which words are French, which are Saxon, which are Roman, and so on. And it's quite possible to speak English without use of any of any foreign words. I mean, Percy Granger, the composer, yeah, it's the tone right. He he was for various political reasons wouldn't use any foreign French words. So his chamber music pieces were called Room Music Tidbits, and if you play his music, it says loud and lots rather than crescendo, <laughs> and the, the viola is a middle fiddle. But what this means is that in English we have a uh, a depth of language and a choice of language that lends itself to all sorts of things, but not necessarily direct emotion. And when people in opera sing, I'm dying, English people giggle. But when it's in French or in German or Italian, it's fine. And of course, Shakespeare um, did this uh, very notably in a lot of his plays, sort of using words with um, Anglo-Saxon origin for one kind of effect. Absolutely words right. with a Latin yeah. origin for another the, kind The, the tree is Anglo-Saxon, the tinsel is French, yes. if you see it. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. And, and also words for pleasure and knowledge and so on. And what it means is in English we have a thesaurus which doesn't exist in English mm. at all. Mm. Well, English has a kind of manners as well. Um, one of the people I can say, there's a new book, the old Biden you make, a guy called Laszlo Krasnavold, he's just brilliant. He writes these very, very dark books with incredibly long sentences. Uh, when you move them across from Hungarian to English, there is humour in the Hungarian, but the humour quotient rises in English. Mm. It's partly because the manners of speaking at great length and the manner of speaking in great big long sentences is it's comical. Uh, it's comical because, we have, because in a way English is embarrassed by this terrible loquacity. Yes. So when you actually move it on a little bit, those things which are kind of like incredible vortices of mm. darkness, mm. So, they're ever so slightly giggly as you go down. We're also embarrassed by emotion as well. And yes. uh, this is why Italian and French are great words for love and passion. Um, for example, um, putting the, um, the leaves off that day, what's it called? The, the, the daisy. Yeah, she loves me, she loves me. Yes, yes. yes. It's too in, in French, and même un peu pas du tout passionnément d'amitié. There's more words than petals, you know. <laughs> um, in English, our choices are very simple, but for some reason, and therefore English is the language of what? Um, law, um, academe, diplomacy, contract, things where precision is to you, you say that, but the, the French pride themselves on ce qui n'est pas clair, mais pas français. Absolutely, right, but that, but that, that means they've got such a small um, thing to... French is a very incomplete language, they haven't even finished yes. it yet. Whereas in English... You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's true, they haven't got cheap, they haven't got shallow, they haven't got 80. But those ones are, are the niceties of philosophy, the niceties of thought. It's interesting. It comes but doesn't, doesn't French have more control? Don't you have an academy which controls French? If you right. don't have, and we can rush in any direction exactly. you like. That's because they're so little the husband, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But actually, even when it comes to love songs, the, the idea of a direct emotion doesn't exist in English. There's a, you know, when I was a kid, Jutain was the big sexy record. I don't know if it's called I Love You, but there's If I Loved You, or If I Fell by the Beatles, or I'm Not In Love by 10CC, or, you know, If Every Should Leave. They're all about conditions and conditionals yeah. and problems, and, but they, they back off and they accessorize. English is very thingy, isn't it? Yeah. English is incredibly solid and material actually, and so forth. Straight statements like of emotion. When I translate French plays when I started, I kept on having to add in as it were, or so to speak, or in a manner of speaking, or you know, to, to yeah. because otherwise the statements just seem so that's, like, like your long sentences. But so. that's because in English we have metaphors. I mean, look at, look at John Donne. Is there anything as sexy or as Absolutely passionate not. in any language? It's not actually in. It's not in verbs. It's in the metaphors, isn't it? It's in, it's in the it's in the choice of words, and that's because we have a choice. Mm. 
Um, so any translation, for example, isn't in, into English is an act of choice. Into other languages, it's yes, making do with what you have. Yes, yes, we have literally yes. twice. We have literally twice as many words. Mm -hmm. Marina, did you have fun putting the poem into uh, We're All Made of Glue? I love, I love doing bad, I've got bad poetry in my next um, book as well. Yes, and I have to say that that, that, that that terribly bad poem, We're All Made of Glue, that has to go, I wandered through the city streets, my heart was burdened down with care, and then I saw thee standing there with raindrops sparkling on thy hair. Sweet Saint Georgina, thou art the patron something of my heart, tell me thou love me. For I know we'll never be apart. And I love doing it, but my goodness, the translators have struggled with that. Because, of course, um, there's a little bit where it refers to the foreshortened last line, like a broken tooth. And so everyone who's translated it has also had to make the last line, not, not only to make all of it doggerel, but then to give it a foreshortened last line as well. Actually, as a last line, it's slightly better than what you could have heard, which is we'll never part. <laughs> and we'll never ever be apart is an interesting. No, we'll never be apart. We'll it's it's still one syllable short. Yeah, we'll but it's a little extra syllable makes it a bit more interesting than okay. right. yes. <laughs> 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 so you can do it next time. Great general syllables here. Jerry, I think I think you actually had singers who normally sing in Italian and had French singing piece of in English, is this correct? Yes, um, actually... The Starting at the top, I believe. Oh, Domingo, yes. <laughs> Domingo sang many of my bells. Um, <laughs> um, no, actually, Domingo was okay, but the other singers were really good on, on the enunciation. Yeah. One thing that's really changed the opera scene, when I started translating operas, the surtitle thing didn't exist. And I was really, I was really pissy about it and said, oh, no, no, these things should be listened to and not read. But now it does exist, and in many ways I'm having to work <coughs> within it. In the old days, I, I had a lot of repetition, a lot of clarity, a lot of writing tricks, so it would really come out mm. of the air. But, but writing, reading it, writing to be read in an opera house is very complicated and difficult, yeah. and mm. goes against nature in so many ways. Nevertheless, there it is. Mm. Um, in London, everybody gets neck ache. The Met, I believe. The Met, Yes, but actually, after a while, you know, it's like when you watch Wallander, you think, oh, this switch isn't so hard after all, is it? You, know? <laughs> you, sort of, you sort of kid yourself, you're actually hearing yeah. it. But I think now, in the Opera House, hearing and reading is, from now on, part of the experience. I, I, to be honest, I wish I hadn't been so hard-lined about it. I did a translation of the entire Ring cycle, Wagner Ring, um, which was... Actually, funnily enough, when I was working on that in Germany, um, I came across, uh, I was at a cafe table, and, and a bloke came across and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm translating Wagner into English. He said, wonderful, when you finish, could you please translate it into German? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my next suggestion. Because uh, the, the German of Wagner is so utterly, utterly strange. Is it? Oh, no, God, right. it's half-timbered. It really is. It's, it's sort of mock cheaper. Lots of these, I mean, very, very... Weirdly old fashioned, it's a style of his own. Nothing English, mm. I know. Um, it's old German, but it's Victorian. It's a bit like Walter Scott, yes, if you like. Yes. Historical novels, but contemporary as at mm. uh, its time. Um, so, a story about the Walter Scott, isn't it? Yes, so I've got a wonderful story about um, Walter Scott, was hugely popular in Germany. I think partly for this reason, you know, he was, um, he was a, sort of seen as a nationalist figure. And um, so there was a German writer called, can't remember, Alexis was his second name, who was translated, was commissioned to, trans to not to translate Scott, but to write a fake Walter Scott novel in German called Voldemort. And um, so he did, and it was a huge success in Germany. And um, Thomas de Quincey, um, best known for Confessions of an Eater, um, was picked it up in a bookshop in London and said, oh, um, you know, I, could, could, could I review this? He was always short of a few bottles, Quincy. And so the bookseller said, yes, as so long as you don't cut the pages, because, you know, it's worth more when you cut the pages, we can sell it on. So to Quincy managed to write a review only by reading the pages that were, um, you know, hadn't been cut. And he exposed it as a frightful scam um, that, um, you know, that, that it wasn't most, 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 most shocking fraud. 
but this made it hugely popular. You know, people thought, what, what, what can this, you know, Sir Walter Scott, household name, what is this fraud? So suddenly, this fact of translation um, generated um, a demand for this novel. So, Quincy, ever sure to have or two, hugely enterprising, then bought the novel, slipped the pages, and set about um, translating it back. Supposedly, it had been a translation from Scott into German, translating it back from German into English. After he got to a certain point, he realised actually it was the most utter load of tosh, and he was not going to do this. So he put it aside and wrote his own version, which then became hugely popular. He split it down into three volumes, into one thin volume, which became um, Walter Scott's German novel. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think we've got time perhaps for a few questions from the floor, or any other panellists, or anyone else got questions? It seems that we're taking a Yes, sir. Do you have a Um, I think I was right in hearing George say that he doesn't think of himself as a storyteller. And I was just wondering, Marina, when you write poetry, whether you think of yourself as a storyteller still? Um, I don't write very much poetry. I don't write the sort of poetry that George writes. I, I do do write... I do, I do sometimes write poetry. And for my sins, I always write poetry that rhymes. And um, I do... Yes, I do think of myself as a little bit of a storyteller. There, there always is... Um, uh, an, an element of um, story in, in the poems that I write. I have to say that the poems I'm very proud of, which have never been published, are a collection of poems for children, which all are story poems, which all rhyme and scan perfectly. And um, what I found I have quite a passion for is actually bad poetry. I've had lots of it. You know, dog roll. It's quite fun. Can I wrote I... a lot of rhyme. Do you know? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes, no, I'm very fond of it. But for all kinds of interesting reasons, not necessarily for the chime bit. Um, there are all kinds of reasons where a rhyme is in fact a modifier of thought mm -hmm. and it leads you into some areas of thought that you might not have had had you not had the obligation to rhyme. Yeah. Actually, my new book, I, got, I, I, I have to share this with you. Um, it's, a, it's a love poem. We'll hold our breath and wait for lightning strikes and run along the beach in our nikes. <laughs> <laughs> And how much uh, does uh, culture in each country affect the way uh, we do say narratives and, um, and, and the way um, and the how many times we actually interpret um, narratives and narrative stories? Uh, like, for example, when I first uh, myself arrived in the United Kingdom, um, which was um, in 1993, um, I do not realize uh, that um, under the British culture, um, some, um, some narratives, uh, they just uh, kept uh, secret or maybe kept themselves um, <coughs> to themselves unless uh, they come up in some kind of media here in the United Kingdom. I mean, newspapers like outside the, the tube stations or some other British rail stations uh, like, um, for example, uh, um, a question, maybe a good question to explore under the narrative theme, uh, why do foreigners uh, come in the United Kingdom, uh, I mean, in the Great Britain? I mean, there's a lot of ways of conceptualizing um, Great Britain. And um, I, um, I trust the lady here, um, she already mentioned some some. Um, uh, some attractions that uh, foreigners like to visit here in the United Kingdom, like, for example, uh, some entertainment shops and uh, maybe some shopping, uh, different types of shopping, which can be found expensively or cheaply in some streets, like Oxford Circus, Piccadilly Circus, um, and some other roads. Uh, however, I think that uh, my realization uh, since 1993 is that um, why do we are still shy and reserved to talk about the good sides of the narratives and uh, simultaneously the bad sides of, of, of the narratives. Like, for example, from my personal experience, uh, back in 2000, my husband's uh, cousin himself, uh, he came as an immigrant uh, via the Eurostar train and unfortunately he did not have a passport valid and uh, therefore he had to hide in the toilet. several questions. Yeah. Um, Marina, I mean, did you go out having a sort of hum with stories? Like 
I think the, I think being a migrant, you you have both the stories of the country that you've come to, which you learn from your peers and you learn from going to school, and you have the stories um, from your family. And of course, as as with your family, I have the story, that, you know, the big story, the big family story is the story of the journey, how they got here, the hardships that they suffered. And I think that you, I think you should write that story about, about how your your parents got here. Just do it. Well, wasn't the point for both you and George? Did the yeah. politics come to this? Were you, were you not actually able to go back to Hungary and not able to go back to the UK? Well, we were refugees. Yeah. We left illegally. Yeah. We walked across the border into Austria, mm. like about 200,000 other people in different ways. Um, so we were, um, there was no thought of going back until 1968 when there was a very brief visit. But of course, it was very badly timed because we went there in August, which is when all the Warsaw Pact armies were marching into Czechoslovakia. So then we had to get out after half the time. Um, there is a, there's never any absence of politics. There's, even now there's not an absence. The next time I'm down here, in fact I'm down here next Wednesday, in a debate about politics in Hungary. Mm -hmm. These things kind of follow one around all one's mm -hmm. life. They um, do, they do. There are stories about Ukraine that follow me around. Yeah, and, and you, you bring, you were talking, I think amongst other things, about culture. Um, and how one brings culture with one. Um, one, do, one, do you notice the use of the third yeah. person? Yes. <laughs> I do this, one does this quite often. <laughs> 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 can you do that in other languages? I can do it in Hungarian. We've got four versions of you in Hungarian. Um, you, can't, you don't know what you bring with you. And was it, was it saying, were you unable to see Ukraine until you were quite old? I, I, I didn't visit Ukraine until, until my book was published, actually. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Mm. So until when, sorry? Until my book was published, in 2005. Mm. So you grew up hearing a lot of stories. Yes, I grew up with a completely mythical idea of Ukraine in my head, which actually, it, it, A, it was fascinating to visit, and B, it was a great fund of stories. And I, um, I'm so glad it's there. Well, I think we have time for one more question. Yes. Um, I'd like to ask about dreaming. Um, my dad was German, and he learned English and was very fluent in English. But to his dying day, he dreamt in German. Mm -hmm. And George said earlier about the first door you see is every other door you see, or something similar. What languages did the panel dream in? <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a day of, of German dreaming in the day? <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, was that, was that Monday morning was the German <laughs> <laughs> I, I lived in German I-17, I think oh, I like okay. to swear, and, and I drop a hammer on my finger, but I still come up with, with things like that. Because it's more expressive. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Where, where these things go from deep down. Well, I don't know. Things are kind of interestingly buggered up in there, so I don't <laughs> really know. <laughs> um, <laughs> not, just for, not just for you, for all of us, I think. It's yeah, you, you don't know. If I'm in Hungary, I will begin to think in Hungarian if I'm there for longer than a week or so. Um, most of the time here I think in English. Um, and I suppose, insofar as I remember languages in dreams, they are tend to be in English. I, th I, um, I think in English most of the time. But I know when I was in Ukraine for three weeks, I started to think in Ukrainian and I became a slightly different person. Mm -hmm. And when I'm in French, when I'm in France for, for a long time, I also start to think in French and become again a slightly different person. And in Ukrainian, I'm sort of nicer in some ways, but also much more childish because my Ukraine, Ukrainian sort of stopped at a certain age when, when I left home. And so I'm terribly good on on food and appetites and bedtimes and things. But I can't swear in Ukrainian at all. I haven't a clue. You know, my parents just didn't teach me. I think that's very disorientating. I think. There's a certain pleasure in beginning to think naturally in, in this other language, yes. but it's incredibly confusing. I, mean, I, I, I don't like the sensation. I don't like the sensation I seem to be passing over from something I know into something I don't really know. I think it's productive and I think it's useful, but it's not enjoyable. I, I, I go through two or three days once that process begins in just wanting to come back here. Hmm. Uh, one thing I think, the English people who don't speak many languages, we've got a whole world we can dip into. <coughs> uh, you're from Ukraine, you're from, I'm from Croydon. And, uh, <laughs> and, and there's a depth 
Oh, oh there is. There is. Particular class. It's something we haven't even yes, talked this about. Yes, this is very. We have our own But actually, what I mean is that even if you don't speak language, you can still travel through languages yes, in English yes. from yes, all sorts of classes in all sorts yes, of areas. Yes, and um, again, there's that breadth. I want to say one quick thing when you're talking about mistranslations. I just remembered um, Alan Bennett talking of class. He, one of his um, monologues, a woman says, I'm looking over the road and they're having their tea. Uh, drug on, no drug on the table, no cloth on, meaning there's no tablecloth. And that's a class judgment of these people. And Alan Bennett showed me <laughs> a French translation, which I have, which was translated as, I can see them having their tea, drug on the table, no clothes on. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Uh, my question is to Jeremy. It's very practical. I'm just curious of how is there a, a kind of a specific activity or workshop that you have to run with singers? When, when you translate something and the singer does not know as a mother tongue that language, how can you make them embody the, the, the feeling of the new words in that translation? I mean, how can you, what type of work that do, do you have to do with that particular singer in order for it's her or him to embody that really feeling? As it happens, singers are the best linguists I know. Uh, any professional opera singer will be able to sing and probably speak, certainly French, German, Italian, most likely Russian. A lot of people sing in Czech. And, and because they do their homework, the idea of language, not necessarily meaning, but the way language uh, occurs to them, is actually comes a lot easier to opera singers than it does to many people. So the idea of turning language into, into sound and vice versa is actually not alien to an opera singer, thank God. Um, although it's quite possible opera singers not having a clue what they're singing about. Um, it's a very broad church, I'll, I'll do the last thing I say, opera's a very broad church. It ranges from people who are like the guests like me and like many of us here who are interested in drama to people who are interested in sound and everything else in between. Yeah. And opera in that respect, you will always irritate or uh, aggravate someone in the opera world by doing something too old-fashioned, too inventive, too modern, too, uh, too ancient. So they know you're singing a top B, but they haven't a clue what words. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and or most importantly, the question of why that person is singing that top B doesn't occur to singers. Mostly because it's, it's, why do you sing it? Because it's in the score. Yeah. Um, an actor does the thing that's required to say his line. The singer is going to sing it anyway. So the trick of opera directing is to give them the motivation that would make them do the thing they're going to do anyway because it says so in the score. Um, and that's very interesting. You have to sort of backphrase the, the intention, if you see what I mean. But many opera directors, in fact, most opera you see is being re-rehearsed by the fifth staff director. And they're just singing it because, why do you sing the top beat? Turn the page, there it is, me, I sing. Yeah. <laughs> that's the point of me, I go. So, yeah. On, on that note, if I'm <laughs> 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 sorry, I'm not going to do this later. Uh, may I thank all three members of our panel for this very lively discussion.